Welcome to the podcast series from the Forum at Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. You may also watch a video of this event at www.forumhsph.org. Welcome, everybody. My name is Sharon Begley. I'm the senior science writer at STAT and the moderator for today's event, which is titled Drug Trials, Challenges for Alzheimer's and Other Urgent Needs. Our program is an hour long and is presented in partnership with HHMI Tangled Bank Studios in collaboration with STAT and in association with NOVA, which has just premiered a film, Can Alzheimer's Be Stopped? a NOVA production of Tangled Bank Studios in association with Holt Productions for WGBH Boston. The film described challenges facing drug trials for Alzheimer's disease. Today, we will use Alzheimer's as a case study of an urgent medical need and more broadly explore the challenges facing drug trials. We will also show two clips from the NOVA film. Let me welcome those of you watching the live stream of the forum on the websites of STAT, NOVA, and Harvard Chan. So our panelists, starting on my immediate right, are Aaron Kesselheim. Aaron is Associate Professor of Medicine at Harvard Medical School and the Brigham and Women's Hospital. He is also Director of the Program on Regulation, Therapeutics, and Law. Next to Aaron is Risa Sperling, Professor of Neurology at Harvard Medical School and Director of the Center for Alzheimer's Research and Treatment and of the Clinical Research Memory Disorders Unit at the Brigham. Jill Goldstein is Professor of Psychiatry and Medicine at Harvard Medical School and Director of Research at the Connors Center for Women's Health and Gender Biology at Brigham and Women's Hospital. And joining us remotely is Pamela Tenarts, Executive Director of the Clinical Trials Transformation Initiative. We also would like to acknowledge Jim Ware, who very much wanted to participate in our program today, but is unable to do so due to illness. And we send Jim our best wishes for his full and speedy recovery. As always, our program will include a Q&A at the end, so you can email your questions to theforum at hsph.harvard.edu. You can also participate in a live chat, which is going on at the forum site right now. Aaron, let us start with um, the big picture generally about clinical trials. If you could just walk us through what they are, how they're organized, and of course, why they're so important. Sure. Um, thank you, and, and thanks for inviting me to this great panel. It's a pleasure to be here. So the clinical trial was conceived over the course of a number of decades in the mid-20th century as a way of trying to assess the effectiveness of a particular intervention, like a prescription drug, in a controlled setting to try as much as possible to, to discount outside influences and biasing factors maybe related to the investigator, the patient, or, or other diseases that the patient might have. As a result, certain features of trials like randomization, comparison, comparison against another active treatment, um, hard clinical endpoints, blinding of the investigator and participants have become synonymous with high quality, rigorous clinical trials. Starting in 1962, the FDA was given the authority to require that new prescription drugs were effective and safe before they could be widely sold. 
And this was deemed necessary at the time because thousands of drugs were on the market and widely sold without any evidence that they worked and led to important public health crises, the most notable one being that uh, linked to thalidomide, the drug that was widely given to, to pregnant women um, to treat their nausea based on scant pre-market testing and ended up causing severe birth defects. As a result, new drugs now go through a process of phased clinical testing, including phase one trials, which are usually single dose pharmacokinetic studies given to a handful of healthy volunteers, phase two trials, which are conducted in a few dozen or so patients to in uh, assess initial responses, um, uh, within the disease of interest, and then phase three trials, which are the classic larger controlled trials that are the first formal testing of a drug's effectiveness. At the same time, safety information is being collected from the volunteers and patients along the way. It's important to recognize that the FDA takes a highly flexible approach to the clinical trials it requires of new drugs, so that new drugs meeting unmet medical needs or life-threatening diseases can qualify for one of numerous expedited development and review pathways, leading them to be subject to substantially smaller and shorter clinical trials. In fact, in recent years, such expedited pathways now encompass the majority of new drugs, and it is the minority of new drugs that are tested in the traditional manner. It's worth looking into some of the data about the pivotal studies that the FDA requires in new drugs, and I have a slide um, that shows some of this. So um, in order to meet the, the uh, efficacy standard for a new drug, only a single phase three trial is now sufficient in addition, to, um, in addition to, to additional confirmatory evidence. That drug can be compared against a placebo as opposed to other active therapy. And in fact, it doesn't even have to be compared against anything. Single arm trials are now su are sufficient for a wide range of rare disease drugs. You can show changes in a biomarker or surrogate endpoint so like a lab test or some other measure that, that doesn't actually measure what a patient actually wants, which is you know, improved symptoms or, or improved mortality. And most drugs are subject to brief, less than six month, highly protocolized settings that exclude many patients who might get the drug after approval. And what you can see on the bottom there are the data showing that um, a majority of uh, that about a third of drugs are only tested against a single pivotal trial. Um, Two-thirds of drugs are tested in, in trials lasting less than six months, even though they're intended to be taken for a lifetime. Ha and over half of drugs now are currently, when they get on the market, tested against placebo um, or against uh, uh, biomarkers or other surrogate endpoints. So in the context of CNS diseases, which I know is what we're talking about today, it's also instructive, I think, to, to consider the important role that rigorous, well-controlled, high-quality clinical studies play. And so I have a second slide. Um, showing, focusing on, the, on drug treatments for CNS diseases. And this shows in, in the two different lines how um, CNS drugs compare in transitioning from phase one to phase two and phase two to phase three and then phase three to approval. And what you can see is that CNS drugs are just as likely as any other drugs to progress from phase one to phase two and phase two to phase three, but that they are substantially and significantly less likely to be shown to be effective in phase three trials. And so, um, and I think that, that, you know, a lot of people ask us in this, in this study that we did, why were there so many CNS drugs that failed in these well-controlled rigorous phase three studies? And we believe it's because there's a lot more work to do to understand the pathophysiology of diseases like Alzheimer's, including developing proper models of the disease and validated biomarkers that can accurately predict a drug's effectiveness. And meanwhile, uh, until we get to that point, it remains essential to test new drugs for these conditions before they can be widely sold using con controlled trials so that we do not subject patients to expensive new drugs that don't work or cause major safety problems. Thank you. So I'm going to ask you also about the phase two to phase three um, difficulties. But first, um, I, I want to call for a video um, clip, as, as Aaron just outlined, drug trials 
are very complicated. So this clip is from Can Alzheimer's Be Stopped, which shows some of the challenges that Aaron outlined. And the clip um, uh, looks at an Alzheimer's drug being developed by Genentech. After years of research, Genentech, like many of its rivals, has developed a potential Alzheimer's drug. It's designed to target amyloid, which makes up plaques. You look at a human brain and they start to form these little clumps or pieces of garbage. We ask ourselves, number one, how can we stop the production? And number two, how can we get rid of the existing garbage that's there? That's the problem. And the solution arises from the tools that we have at hand, which are basically the body's own immune system. The drug is an antibody, similar to the ones found in our blood. It binds to amyloid and signals immune cells to destroy it. Many companies are testing similar antibodies, and some have run into serious problems. Shanaz Suleiman, who helps manage the testing, is well aware of the challenges. We're all extremely hopeful, but also extremely nervous, because the history of Alzheimer's drug development has been fraught with difficulty and failure. Some drugs have caused brain swelling in patients who have been in clinical trials. So that's a side effect that we will track very closely. The drug will be tested in a series of clinical trials, divided into three phases. Are growing and then you have your so we ran a relatively large phase one clinical trial, and that was designed to test this question around safety. And phase one indeed showed that the drug is not going to cause this swelling in the brain. So that's a good start. The drug was ready for a phase two trial to determine its effectiveness and the best dose. It would first be tested in the U.S. and Europe not on the rare familial type of Alzheimer's, but on the most common form, where the cause is less clear. We say you are the principal investigator for another uh, trial um, called A4. I wonder if you would tell us about that, um, how you've set it up, um, the challenges that it has faced along the way. Well, thank you very much for uh, having me at this uh, wonderful forum. So yes, I am honored to lead a study called the A4 study, which stands for Anti-Amyloid Treatment in Asymptomatic Alzheimer's Disease. And this is really the first of its kind trial where we've realized in Alzheimer's disease that the process of Alzheimer's disease evolves over more than a decade. And that most of our previous trials have been run at the stage of dementia, where individuals already have very significant brain damage. And our thinking, just as in every other field where we've really made strides like cancer and HIV AIDS and heart disease, that if we could go earlier in the disease, we'd have a better chance uh, with very similar medications to those you just saw. So on the slide that's up right now, you can see again that dementia we now think of as relatively late and maybe close to the end stage of this disease. There's been a lot of work at the stage of mild cognitive impairment, that's maybe five years earlier. 
But the A4 study is actually run in an asymptomatic or a preclinical population. And that's really important because at this stage of the disease, we can detect the pathology, but people don't yet have symptoms. On the next slide, I'm showing you, you saw that beautiful graphic from the NOVA program, but this is what the brain of an Alzheimer's patient invariably looks like. And you can see the two hallmark pathologies. The rounded areas are the amyloid plaques that accumulate 10, maybe even 20 years before people get to the stage of dementia. And the other hallmark pathology, the uh, black triangles there, those accumulate inside the nerve cells and are more closely linked uh, to the symptoms of Alzheimer's disease. So in the next slide, um, I'm showing you what has really enabled us to change the way we run clinical trials in Alzheimer's disease and specifically enabled the A4 study, which is we can now detect evidence of Alzheimer's pathology during life. And we can see these changes using imaging or fluids to be able to see that these changes occur before symptoms, hopefully intervene and prevent the progression. But there are a number of challenges with this approach. So you mentioned that it would be wonderful if we can run trials in six months. So in Alzheimer's disease, the FDA has been quite clear that we are not allowed yet to run trials using a surrogate marker because we haven't fully validated the available markers. And the cognitive changes that begin in the disease, especially early, take quite a long time to run. So the A4 study is a very large trial. It's about 1,100 people in the US, Canada, and Australia. And it lasts for three and a half years. And to find the people who are the perfect fit for this study, meaning they have no symptoms, but they have evidence of Alzheimer's disease changes in their brain, as shown here on the PET scans on the top, where you can see in that middle scan is a normal person who already has amyloid plaque buildup. And that's, of course, who we want in the A4 study to try to prevent them from progressing to dementia. But we have to screen 10,000 people to find our 1,100 who are really the perfect fit for the study. Eventually, this will help us make much more efficient trial designs. Uh, and I hope in the future, as we're already planning, that our studies can be much more efficient, shorter, and we'll get answers quicker. But this first-of-its-kind trial is taking a long time. We're about halfway through enrollment, but I hope we'll finish by the end of this year. And before um, we leave that subject, um, Risa, just what is the timeline, um, enrollment yeah. by the end of this year, and then when might the first um, results be reported? So it's a three and a half year trial, so I uh, suspect that our results will really be in the end of 2019 or more likely 2020. Um, I think we'll finish screening by this year, but the screening process is three or four months long, so we likely won't fully close enrollment until about April of uh, next, next year. year and then the waiting game begins. Right. Um, let me turn now to Pam, who has kindly joined us um, remotely. Pam, your organization was co-founded by the FDA and Duke to make clinical trials more efficient. Um, could you tell us what needs to change um, and how the organization is thinking about ways to change clinical trials? Of course, and I would like to add my thanks to, can you hear me? You're coming through great, yes. Perfect, perfect. So I would like to thank you and the organization uh, for inviting me as well, and I'm really looking forward to this conversation, which is near and dear to my heart, is clinical trials and getting safe and effective drugs and therapies to patients, in this case, um, Alzheimer's. So as um, Aaron mentioned, um, 
patients and providers need good quality data to make decisions on. And clinical trials have been typically the bedrock of how this is accomplished, of getting us reliable evidence. And what has happened over the past 10 to 15 years, though, is that clinical trials have increasingly become complex. They've gotten slower, more costly, and basically they're in, in crisis. I think the cost of developing a clinical trial was recently uh, put at about $2.6 billion by an, a study from Tufts University. So that's really a lot of money. And um, what's happening is, as I said, is protocols are increasingly getting complex. Uh, the same Tufts group has done studies and CNS trials. So uh, the trials that Alzheimer's disease fall into are one of the ones that have become more complex than others, even at a faster rate. Um, so what, what that does is that clinical trial startup times are getting slower than you'd like them to be. Enrollment is slowing. I see recent nodding. That, that typically happens in a clinical trial. So I'm happy you're getting close to your enrollment. Costs are increasing, and investigators are also pulling out of the whole clinical trial industry. Uh, an additional thing that's happening that, that is go going on still is that the public really is not aware of clinical trials in the way that maybe they ought to be. And, and they really, because they're not aware, they don't understand how they can participate and how their participation can really lead to solutions for future patients as well. And it's really these movies like the Nova one that's being put out this week are critically important to sort of get that message out. So I'm really, really happy that that's in the news. And actually clinical trials are even more in the news these days in that um, this, both the Congress and the House and the Senate are working on legislation to make clinical trials more efficient and bring medical innovation to patients even faster than what it is now. So all these problems I've mentioned really impact our increasing need for evidence. And really we're at a point where we really need an efficient evidence gathering, gathering system because we really need to be able to evaluate these new drugs, biologics, and um, the devices, they, they fall in the same category. We also need to figure out what the best practice is when a couple of drugs are on the market. At this point, it's very hard to figure out which one the best one would be for any given patient. And we have to also be able to do comparative effectiveness studies of diagnostics and therapeutic alternatives. So CITI was really founded to help solve or be part of the solution of creating more efficient and more quality-driven trials. And the way we do that is by creating conducts, a product, uh, projects. And we, our projects are really used to create empirical information around how clinical trials are done now, and then to find solutions on how to do them better. And our recommendations are multi-stakeholders, so we involve everybody around the table as part of the clinical research enterprise. We have patients, IRBs, industry, uh, government and regulators are involved, academia is involved, and really everyone who has a stake in the ground with clinical trials is involved because we believe that to be able to find a good solution, we have to listen to all the voices equally. Um, and recently, one of the other things that's happened is there's a new commissioner, Rob Califf, who, is, who actually was one of the founders of City, and he just announced, and I think it will come up later, that uh, there really also needs to be more diversity in clinical trials. We've got a lot of clinical trials going on, but the gender distribution, the ethnicity distribution is really not where it is supposed to be at the moment. So we're we're all, all working on that. And this problem with clinical trials is even more critical in areas of unmet need. And Alzheimer's, as Aaron mentioned, and you all mentioned, is definitely an area of unmet need in where there's not really a 
it's a condition where there's no real good treatment at the moment. So that's definitely an area of unmet need. And it's also a serious condition that is really a societal issue, where in a couple of years, we're going to have things we're going to have to deal with if we can't get ahead of this disease um, at the moment. And so um, these improving clinical trials, in addition to creating pathways that are accelerated the way Aaron described, we also need to look at the clinical trials themselves and really try to figure out what is it we need to do to make them more efficient, but also sometimes what is it we need to do to make them more quality driven. So that is what our initiative is working on. And I, and, and I think a little bit later in the program, we can talk about some of the specific things and projects we've, we've started. Thank you. Great. Um, so Pam's mention of um, diversity, especially gender diversity, is a perfect segue um, mm -hmm. to Jill's work. Jill, you're uh, the director of research at the Connor Center in Women's Health and Gender Biology and director of the Clinical Neuroscience Lab of Sex Differences in the Brain. Um, I wonder if you could talk about how understanding sex differences tells us something about what needs to change for the next generation of clinical trials and, and how this might apply specifically to trials for uh, Alzheimer's drugs? Well, sex differences in the frequency of chronic disease are absolutely pervasive. It's true in the onset, the expression, the course, the prognosis, and in treatment response. We even metabolize drugs differently at the level of the gastric level at the stomach and metabolizing drugs differently in the brain. And therefore, it is incumbent upon us to use this knowledge to enhance the efficacy of the next generation of therapeutics. Now, we are at a particularly wonderful time politically in that there is, in, and in medicine, in that there's now a focus on precision medicine, personalized medicine, that is enhancing treatment at an individual level. And what could be more personal than one's sex? And so Alzheimer's disease, for example, is, is, is really a wonderful example of, of how we can begin to incorporate this kind of thinking. First of all, women are at twice the risk for Alzheimer's disease than men. And the field has essentially believed that it is simply because women live longer. But we now know that that's not wholly the case. A few fun facts about sex differences in the brain and the regulation of memory. Estradiol, which is the major form of estrogen that works in the brain, can actually regulate the expression of the main gene that's been identified as a risk factor for Alzheimer's, the APOE and its E4 allele. Estradiol can reduce the accumulation of amyloid in the brain, one of the, the hallmarks, as Dr. Sperling told us, of, of Alzheimer's disease. And estradiol can regulate memory circuitry activity in the brain and actually can enhance memory function. So what happens to women with a loss of ovarian function during the perimenopausal to menopausal stage, which all women go through? So who are those women who are at highest risk for Alzheimer's disease after the menopausal transition? We have this opportunity to use that knowledge to identify who might be, as Dr. Sperling said, walking around with amyloid in their brain but asymptomatic. We can use our knowledge of sex differences in the brain to help identify who might be at early risk for Alzheimer's 10, 15 years, years later. One last point about timing. 
Timing is everything in order to identify significant sex effects in health and disease. Timing across the lifespan, that is. And so we can use this knowledge about menopausal transition and the role of estradiol and actually testosterone as well in the regulation of brain and memory function in order to identify who might be at highest risk for Alzheimer's later in life. Thank you. Thank you so much. So everything that you all have said has triggered dozens of questions in, in my little brain. Um, but before we get to any of those, um, I'd like to show another clip from the, uh, the NOVA show. Um, again, can Alzheimer's be stopped? And this one shows um, or, or, or depicts a decision that Biogen, the biotech company here in Cambridge, made about going to phase three, as Aaron described to us, um, with an Alzheimer's drug that it is developing. So if we could show that, please. For Tony Estrella, the risk seems worth taking, especially if the trial leads to a successful drug for his mother. What, where is that arrow? Can you tell me where that arrow, what that arrow is I connecting? Just, it's connecting from 11 to 9. Hmm. So you think you changed it from 11 to 9. That's why you crossed out the 9. I don't know. You're looking for a lifeline of some kind because it's unknown territory. And so with that comes a certain amount of fear about what's going to happen to your mom. And all of a sudden, you can't help but think about yourself as well. Probably in this week, we picked the right week. And my grandfather had Alzheimer's as well. And so you think about, um, well, this is, you know, this isn't going to stop here which makes this trial so important. Betting that the side effects can be managed, Biogen is taking the gamble and jumping directly to phase three trials, treating thousands of patients. We are in the midst of testing a hypothesis that the world has been challenged to test. We think this is a very viable target. It may not be the only target. And huge investments are at stake. A lot of time and efforts at stake. We're looking for a signal, somewhere a signal that would show that we're on the right track. And in the last couple years, a small signal is beginning to emerge, suggesting that these antibody therapies may provide us with a treatment. So one of the interesting things about that um, is going to phase three, as you described, Aaron, um, thousands of patients rather than a smaller phase two trial. Um, I want to ask about that, but first let me ask an even more basic question. Um, Risa, you described the recruiting um, process. Um, and like researchers in many, many fields, um, uh, you have pointed out the need for patients to be aware of clinical trials and um, ideally to uh, want to be involved in them. I wonder if you could just tell us why they should, from their self-interested perspective, from their family's perspective, altruistic reasons undoubtedly, but is there something for them as well? So I think that's a really important question. I think in Alzheimer's disease, there's particular reasons to be involved in trials. One, of course, is that we don't yet have any disease-modifying therapy. So at the moment, the only option for being able to get one of these is participating in a trial. 
Um, secondly, even if you are randomized to the placebo, there are data suggesting that the placebo group in clinical trials in Alzheimer's disease do much better than natural history. And I think that's partly because of the feeling of engagement, the interaction with the study personnel, and the feeling that you're trying to do something. People in Alzheimer's disease feel very, with Alzheimer's disease, and their families feel incredibly helpless, that there's nothing they can do. And this is something they can do. I hope it will help them, but if not, it will help the next generation and for many people, making sure that their kids are not faced with this disease is critically important. Pam, if I could ask you to weigh in on that as well. Is, is the new center, is one of the new center's um, uh, priorities trying to spread the word more about clinical trials? And again, this is something that I hear from cancer biologists, oncologists all the time that only, I think it's perhaps five percent of cancer patients are involved in clinical trials. Um, is that something that you see as a uh, improvable situation? Well, I think going from five, you can't get any worse. So you, you know, that should be, <laughs> that should be improvable. And um, it's interesting that you mentioned because we just had our member meetings on Monday and Tuesday, and that topic came up as whether city that, you know, clinical trials transformation initiative should play a role in educating the public. And we've typically haven't done that. We've really, our work has typically been, been sort of aimed at people that are in the research industry. What I want to add to um, what was said earlier about why patients should participate in clinical trials is, if you think about it, every time you go to a doctor and that doctor prescribes you something, that was because somebody participated in a clinical trial. So it's, it's altruistic, but it's really you are the beneficiary of other people having done this. And it's really, I think, a civil duty in many ways, in my opinion, personal opinion, that people participate because that's the only way you're getting medications or treatments. And really, you should be able to pay that forward to future generations. But of course, I'm a little enthusiastic about clinical trials, maybe more than, than other people are. But so yes, we haven't really taken that on. We a lot of people are talking about it. Um, so I'm hoping maybe it'll go somewhere. At one point, there was talk about doing a, a get milk type um, adver advertisement campaign. Descript, the uh, organization that's with Tufts, uh, that, that's with the Center of uh, Drug Development at Tufts, they are actually, they've organized a museum um, exhibit that is a roving museum exhibit that's going to go to different um, cities around the United States to talk more about clinical trials. And the Research America has also done a lot of work about making um, clinical trials more known to patients. But almost the other thing that's crazy about this is that only 15 to 17 percent of physicians talk to their patients about clinical trials. So it's not just the public, it's really also the, 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 the physicians and the providers that probably uh, need to play a bigger role, but it's hard when you're, you know, racing against time, having to see patients every 10, 10 minutes or whatever it is, to then add that into the, to the mix. But it's sort of a, a, a responsibility of everyone, but forums and movies such as these definitely help a lot as well. I'm glad you mentioned the clinician's role because as you were uh, talking, I was wondering what is the most effective point of leverage? Is it indeed a get gut milk sort of wide angle, tell as many members of the public as possible about this, or might it be more effective to be more focused on physicians who see patients who you want to enroll in clinical trials. Um, for any of the panelists, um, but Risa, you look like you might be interested in jumping in here. I wonder if there is anything we know about 
either the way clinical trials are organized, um, any kind of incentive for physicians, is anyone, is FDA, is there a way to get clinicians more enthused and involved? Or if you disagree that clinicians are the leverage point, please speak up. <laughs> I'll anyway. start on this because uh, in most Alzheimer's disease trials, um, all of the ones in symptomatic patients really have targeted going through clinicians. And I very much agree with the statement that most people, most people's physicians in Alzheimer's disease in particular do not bring up uh, clinical trials. They often even feel worried about bringing up the A word, the Alzheimer's disease world word, and they don't typically um, think about Alzheimer's disease clinical trials because they have this idea that there's nothing that can be done about Alzheimer's. For the A4 study, however, for the very first time, we realized we had to go to the people themselves because these are not people in memory clinics. These are asymptomatic individuals who've seen Alzheimer's disease in a family member, maybe a little bit worried, but they haven't gone to a doctor. And so for the first time, we've really had to reach out to the public. This is something we're still learning about, and in particular for diversity. We would very much like that one out of every five people screened come from an underrepresented minority. And this has been the greatest challenge, actually, for us in recruitment, in particular because Alzheimer's disease is not yet seen as a major health problem in uh, African-American and Latino populations, even though they're at much higher risk. So this is something I spend a lot of time thinking about, and we really need help from efforts like City to help us work on this. So one of the interesting things about discussions of clinical trials is that implicit in many of the discussions is the idea that the clinical trials themselves are somehow at fault for, at least partly at fault for, our failure to have more effective drugs out there, whether they're oncology drugs, CNS, just anything. That it's the trials, the trials set up their organization that has somehow kept good drugs from getting to patients. One hears that politically a lot when the FDA is accused of um, letting people die because they didn't approve drugs. Um, Aaron, I wonder if we could get back to the study that you showed a slide from and the progression of experimental compounds through phase one, two, and three. Um, and as you saw in the uh, Biogen clip that they are jumping, they're doubling down on this, they're going to phase three. Um, do, does your work suggest that there are actual winners that were somehow blocked by the clinical trials process? Or did the clinical trials um, where drugs failed, did they do what they were supposed to do in keeping out compounds that, going back to your thalidomide point, were either not safe or not effective? Well, thanks. I think that's a really, I think that's a really important point, and I appreciate your bringing up this terrible misconception that is out there that it, that the FDA or that regulation in this area is somehow blocking cures or treatments from getting to patients. And I think that actually that misperception um, is uh, is what is stimulating actually the, this uh, very uh, misguided um, legislation that is in front of Congress right now to try to. Uh, allow drugs to go on the market without being tested in, in, uh, in controlled clinical trials. Um, in fact, um, the, uh, you know, the clinical trial process allows us to, um, dis uh, to, to um, distinguish the wheat from the chaff in terms of the products that do work from the products that don't work. Um, and you don't even have to go back to you know, the pre-1960s era to imagine what life in the, uh, in, the, in the therapeutic space would be like without 
um, a need to do clinical trials, you can just look at the, at the nutritional market, nutritional supplement market, where you have hundreds of products on the market that have, been not, that have not been tested at all, and, and uh, many of them don't work, a lot of them end up killing people, um, and there's just no, uh, there's no control at all over the marketplace. And so, um, you know, the, the existence and the need to do clinical trials actually is what, um, it, you know, provides a substantial, you know, benefit to patients by um, allowing them to choose among drugs that at least have some evidence um, of effectiveness of, uh, of those products. So, um, and then I would also point out the fact that the FDA is the fastest drug regulatory agency in the world when it comes to approving new drugs, um, when, you know, when those drugs are shown to work. And so um, there, there's uh, absolutely no evidence whatsoever that clinical trials of the FDA is somehow stopping uh, effective products from, from getting on the market. Anyone else on that point? Or, uh, yes, I, I just, um, So I very much agree. I think that statement's um, uh, very accurate. And you know, when I came into Alzheimer's disease, I definitely heard that the FDA and the regulators were the problem. And not just because they were blocking effective drugs, which I totally agree, sadly. I have not seen yet a trial that I think is, is, should have been approved. But also I want to um, call out to the FDA because I think they've been very flexible in evolving in Alzheimer's disease. They changed their guidelines for the first time in 37 years and have a draft guideline they published in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2014 that allowed a trial like A4 to go forward, to actually change what's required for approval um, that evolves as we move earlier in the disease because the trial designs for late dementia are not appropriate for prevention trials. So I think they are working with us and the community with academics to really evolve with us and I, I think they're doing a good job. And I, th I think there's also a little bit of misconception about the cost of these trials. Um, and, I, and I think that the invocation of the industry-sponsored Tufts Center's um, this multi-billion dollar cost of the development of new drugs, highly biased and very incorrect number. Um, it is very expensive to, to develop new trials, but you know, drugs are also very expensive and when those trials end up working, the drugs can be sold for a very high profit. Um, that can that can end up making back the the revenue that was the the you know hundreds of millions of dollars that end up being spent um, on the development process. Pam, let me um, kick it back to you. Um, are there? Uh, Aaron briefly mentioned um, the the Cures Act that is, depending on how you view this, either going through Congress or stuck in Congress. Um, um, is there anything in what it, that legislation proposes um, that you think would achieve what everyone wants to achieve, namely the, um, the approval of effective drugs for um, diseases like Alzheimer's. If you could just talk about that proposed legislation and whether you think it addresses what needs to be addressed. Um, it addresses some things and then it doesn't address others, obviously. Um, I think some of the good things in there are that they're highlighting, for example, the use of a central IRB in multicenter trials. Um, which is currently the process is when a trial is created, the protocol is written, and it goes to the different centers. Typically at the centers, there's a local IRB, which is an ethics group that looks a combination of people that looks out for the safety and integrity of trial results and safety of patients. Typically that now occurs at every single site individually. And um, 
there's a, a huge delay that goes on with that potentially. And research has shown that if you get an IRB sooner, you can typically get all the other things lined up sooner and your enrollment in the trial is being done sooner. So now CD has done work around that and FDA and OHRP had indicated that that was a good idea to use a single IRB of record for multi-center trials and still institutions were not using it. So we investigated why that might be. We did interviews with institutions and IRB chairs. And what we found is that institutions were un, like a little bit um, not willing to use it because they had incorporated our, uh, institutional responsibilities into the IRB review. So they were reluctant to then give those responsibilities to a central IRB because then they thought maybe their institutional re responsibilities couldn't be taken care of. And through our recommendations, we offered a way to take, take care of that and, and to be able to do that. And now um, we were lucky enough to have Peter Kaufman from the NCATS at NIH on, on our groups and, and, and the CTSAs are now requiring going forward for the use of a single IRB. So some of the uh, things in the legislations are things like that, which are very good. Um, I think they're not being too prescriptive, which is always good because we're always a little worried about unintended consequences when legislation like that comes up. But they've, in my opinion, they've done a lot of homework and they've done, they've talked to a lot of different people. They are um, putting, uh, on my, in my opinion, it's, it's a positive thing rather than a negative thing that they're proposing. I want to ask a biomarkers question because that's something that um, several of you brought up. Um, so we saw in the Nova clip the, the PET scans showing um, amyloid plaque deposition. Um, so let me take a non-Alzheimer's example. Something long thought to be a biomarker for cardiovascular disease is lipid levels, HDL, LDL, total cholesterol, et cetera. And a few experimental compounds have been shown to do good things to your cholesterol levels. Um, it's not so clear that they do good things for the thing that patients, of course, care about, namely not having a heart attack and not dying of cardiovascular disease. So that's one example from another field. Um, I wonder if any of you would talk a little bit about the use of biomarkers for Alzheimer's and the reason I mentioned the PET scan, um, the, the long known fact that there are brains that have these plaques, but, um, and again, the very basis for the A4 study, um, they, these brains seem to be functioning okay. So what kind of challenge does that pose for the study and for persuading the FDA that if you do something in biomarkers, you're actually doing something good for soon-to-be Alzheimer's patients or existing Alzheimer's patients or whatever, for any one, of course, Risa would be, if you want to kick us off here. Well, I think it's an excellent question, and it's uh, absolutely the case that, you know, there are people with plaques in their brains who seem to be resilient, and we need to understand this. I would say our research in the Harvard Aging Brain Study so far, though, suggests that they're only resilient for a while and that unfortunately people do progress, but it can take years. But this is why these trials are so long, because right now the FDA, and I have to say I think appropriately, says you have to have a clinical outcome 
we don't yet know enough about any of these biomarkers to say that reducing amyloid or slowing tau spreading, which we can also see, really will translate into a clinical benefit. So part of the A4 study, which is something different besides the fact that it's asymptomatic, is everyone gets biomarkers. They get them at the beginning, the middle, and the end. Usually we use biomarkers just in small subsets in these trials, and it's made it very hard for us to validate and link a change in a biomarker to a change in a clinical outcome. And that's something I hope that A4 will do, not only in the treatment effect, but in the placebo group. So we really can see what happens to these biomarkers over time. Because your example with cholesterol and lipids is very uh, well thought of, and there have been some paradoxes in Alzheimer's disease where drugs that seemingly work actually made people's brains shrink on MR atrophy. And in general, we don't think of that as a good thing. So I think we need lots of biomarkers, lots of trials, and of course we need a drug that works so we can go back and then say, did our biomarkers actually predict a positive response? Jill, yeah. Biomarkers is a wonderful example, identifying biomarkers of how understanding the impact of sex really will be an important contribution to individualizing treatment. And even your example of cardiovascular disease and lipids, actually there's a sex difference in the distribution of those lipids. And there's a very substantial sex difference in cardiovascular disease. And cardiovascular disease is a major risk factor independent for Alzheimer's disease. And usually disorders like cardiovascular disease, depression also another independent risk factor that occurs really prior to Alzheimer's disease. These things also show sex differences in their biomarkers, in their uh, expression, and that we need to use this kind of information, tell us something about biomarkers for the risk for Alzheimer's disease. So actually understanding the sex differential in the expression of some of these biomarkers, we believe will in enhance clinical trial design and eventually, hopefully, the generation of what we're calling sex-dependent therapeutics. Um, I want to ask just one more question, but then I'm, I want to open it up to questions from the audience, um, both here in the studio and online. Um, and my, my last question is, is a little bit in the weeds, so I apologize if it's too crazily specific. Um, and I think I'm going to address this to Aaron, at least to start. Um, so there have been, as Risa reminded us, um, a number of trials of Alzheimer's drugs which didn't make it, not only because brain shrunk or inflammation or whatever, but they, they just didn't make it. Um, some of the compounds that are currently being tested um, as phase one or phase three happens, the investigators, the companies generally, do not only the straight basic analysis that they described um, as their intention, but something called subgroup analysis, um, an effort to find, and here I'm simplifying ridiculously, but just some something about some people who this might benefit. Um, that's the sort of positive spin on it. Um, I wonder if you would just take a crack at the most basic of basic levels about subgroup analysis, if there's any way to rescue if that's the right word, rescue some of these compounds with something about how you analyze the data that you collect. Sure. 
So, I mean, I think that, um, that you make it a very important point, which is that when a, a drug uh, fails in a clinical trial, it could be that there are certain uh, subgroups in which the drug might have worked, but we just don't know enough about the basic biology of the drug or of patients um, in order to identify those people. And so it happens on times that, that some people will go back to a clinical trial and look at the trial and say, oh, look, it looks like left-handed people who are 60 years old did, a really, you know, did really well on this drug. Um, I think the problem comes when people then use that as a basis for making decisions about the fact that, well, the drug obviously works then in that group, when this sort of post hoc rationalization subgroup analysis is really just a hypothesis generating exercise, where the next step should be to say, okay, well, if we really have some legitimate basis for assuming that left-handed 60-year-old women uh, um, are, the, are the group that, that is, um, is most likely to respond to this product, we should then run a prospective trial of that group in order to randomize people within that subgroup and to determine if it's a, it's a, if it's a real effect or if it's just a, a, a statistical anomaly that comes up. So I think that this is a, a really good um, you know, and, and positive way, especially in, in areas like, um, like CNS disease where um, you know, the, the biology and pathophysiology, you know, continues to evolve of trying to um, assess potential signals, but I think it's the start of a research process, not the end of one. Yes. yes, so I very much agree, but I will say that this hypothesis generation from these subgroup analyses in Alzheimer's disease have really changed how we think about it and actually have generated new different trials. So the first is, again, finding people who have the target pathology. So we've looked at sub-analyses and we realized a lot of people in some of these trials didn't have amyloid plaques and they didn't have Alzheimer's pathology nor the drug. And the other subgroup that's really made a difference is looking at stage of disease. So three phase three trials all suggesting that the mildest um, phase of the disease were the only subset that benefited. And now they have gone back and run additional and are running additional phase three trials. So I agree, we have to be very careful to approve a drug on the basis of a post hoc analysis, but to use that information to design better trials, critical. Okay. Jill. Yeah, I think Aaron's point is a really important one for why it is absolutely essential to design your study to, to, to identify a sex effect. Not to go back later on and say, oh, we'll just separate our data by sex, see whether there's a difference or not. Sex is a complicated variable like any other variable that you are interested in looking at, and it needs to be incorporated into the design. 1993, there was the Revitalization Act of, of the National Institute of Health requiring uh, clinical trials to include women. And 20 years later, uh, we reevaluated uh, what was going on with that. And what happened was the GAO, the General Accounting Office, in uh, 2015 put out a report saying that there needs to be more of oversight of this, that in fact, even though this was required, we've come a long way and women are now in clinical trials. But in fact, the data are not being analyzed by sex and we are still not fully in compliance with the 1993 Revitalization Act. So um, I just want to say that it is very important to think about this issue in the design of your clinical trial in order to identify whether there is a difference or not. So there's so much to talk about. Um, Lisa, do we have any questions from the online audience? Yes, we do, and thanks for addressing the Cures Act because we did have some of that, so I won't take those. Um, 
This is from Mary Edlin. How can drug companies recruit more women and minorities for clinical trials, particularly for Alzheimer's disease, which more African Americans than whites and more women than men have? So um, I, I can address the good news about women in Alzheimer's <laughs> disease is that most clinical trials in Alzheimer's disease actually have more women than men because of the increased prevalence. And But I think it's very important to account for this up front and really analyze it. The um, minorities, um, ethnic and racial minorities, though, is a critical problem. Um, all the biomarker studies, all of the large clinical trials, less than 5% um, of African Americans and Latinos, and even Asians who actually have a lower likelihood of Alzheimer's disease are underrepresented. So I think this, we really need outreach. Um, again, for drug companies, it's in their best interest to understand what the racial ethnic differences might be in the effect. But as a community, we this is a place where a lot of education is really needed and partnership with the communities of color to say this is really important uh, to your community as well. Thank you. Um, I think I'll do one more and then yes, we can please. take one from the audience. Uh, let's see. Um, I'm interested in hearing more about how patients can become more involved as stakeholders in the clinical trial process. What can we do to increase patient evaluations and feedback of their trial experiences to improve the overall process? How are patients currently consulted about their experiences and what are your suggestions for improvement? I'll, I'll start and you go, go ahead, ahead though. Ahead, I want you to start. So I think this is really important. Um, we don't typically ask people um, what their experience is like. Maybe we're afraid to find out. But um, I can say in the A4 study, we actually put in what's called a research satisfaction questionnaire that we ask at the beginning and periodically and at the end and uh, really want to know how people can, um, what they think, what could we do better. Um, the tough thing is there are some things that we'd love to change that people ask us for that we can't. Like we would love to be able to do PET scans in their house. This would really make a huge difference for people not to have to travel. That one we can't fix. But other things we really could change. And I think getting input all along the way from the participants. Um, we've stopped calling people subjects. They're participants. They're joining us in this endeavor and we should listen to them. Maybe we should partner with Pottery Barn or something. Yes, exactly. I would say. Go ahead. No, I was. I was also going to just bring up a point uh, of something. There's a there's a principle in ethics called the therapeutic misconception that sometimes uh, is is relevant here, where p uh, patients um, are enrolled in clinical trials, thinking that the point of the clinical trial is to uh, is primarily to treat them. Um, as opposed to generate scientific evidence. And I think that um, why, when we do in involve and in, in sort of do this engagement to reach out to patients, we need to make very clear what the goals are of the clinical trial enterprise and to make sure that patients aren't um, confused about, uh, about what their role is and, and what the experiences they might, they might anticipate receiving. But I'm sorry, Pam, I didn't mean to interrupt. Uh, no, 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 no worries. I did want to... Uh, say a few words about this because at city we really really think patients are equal partners in the drug and review process so it's not just about their experiencing as a their experience as a patient within the trial we think patients are an equal voice to the researchers to industry to make sure that the trial is a question that they're interested in and that the endpoints are things they're interested in and that they help direct the research from the beginning to the end and we truly think that to um come up with better successful trials, patients are a key component that are often being 
put at the kids' table at the moment. And we really think they need to be part of the planning. They need to sit at the table and have an equal voice in the whole drug and development process. Because without them, it's for them. We're probably one of the last industries to actually ask the people we're working for what their ideas are. And I think it's time that we change that. Yeah. I, I think this is a good point to, um, to say something about the caretaking role, uh, who are primarily women. Uh, and that they are providing, um, I forgot what the, the, the number of uh, the amount of uh, expenditures that they are providing unpaid for uh, in the treatment of their relatives. They're high risk for the disease themselves. Um, and they, uh, it's very important to bring them into the process of, of not just the, the patients, but also their relatives, and bring them into the recruitment process, the enrollment, having them think about that process with the treaters uh, and with um, the uh, people who are developing the, the therapeutics themselves. So I think that's a very important role that caretaking, caretakers can take, and they're primarily women. Does our audience have any questions? If you just raise your do we have a microphone or just, yes, there, yes, please. Ann Lusk, I would like to underscore the value of involving African-American women. The African-American women, especially the older women who are congregants in a church, are so other-directed. They're much more caring of others than they are even of their own health. If you could develop a PR campaign in which you could clearly show them the helpers high and the benefits, it sort of goes back to the nun study where a lot of the nuns gave their brains after. Obviously, they were dead, but they were so highly involved in the study while it was ongoing. Excellent idea and one that we're absolutely um, pursuing. I think, um, again, uh, faith plays a, a large role in, in families of color, and I think this is really important. But I think there are also important other avenues that we must pursue that are not just faith-based, especially as um, generations change. But I completely agree with you. Was there a question there? Yes, please. Um, this may not be especially relevant to Alzheimer's, but in clinical trials, how do you balance the desire to get potentially helpful drugs to the market quickly with the risk of long-term effects? Right. Well, that's a that's a key issue, and I think that uh, un, you know, unfortunately, um, uh, when in testing a new drug, even among a few hundred or a few thousand patients, uh, that is not enough. Uh, that is not enough patients in order to identify potential safety signals, particularly if those safety signals are rare, or even if those safety signals are common, to distinguish them from this, from from you know baseline uh, baseline outcomes. And so, um, it is absolutely critical that there be a continuum of learning about a about a drug, so that after the drug reaches the market, we continue to follow up uh, um, actively to identify um, you know how the drug is working in in patients as it's being used. Um, and then continue to, and then feed that information back uh, to the FDA um, so that there can be decisions made about whether or not, um, you know, the, the indications of the drug or the, the safety description of the drug need, need to be changed. And there are a couple processes that exist right now. Um, there's this new, a new, a new system called the Sentinel system that is a sort of more active post-market surveillance of the, of the, 
um, of drugs. There are um, post-approval studies that are sometimes suggested of uh, pharmaceutical manufacturers. Unfortunately, the evidence suggests that pharmaceutical manufacturers tend to, do, uh, tend to be relatively delayed in doing those studies or not get them done. So there needs to be, I think, uh, greater um, uh, ability to the, of the FDA to uh, require those studies to be done and to be done in, in, a, in, a, in a defined period of time. But I think that as, as we um, you know, think about uh, clinical trial policy and regulatory policy around introduction of new drugs, we need to be cognizant um, that uh, you know, after a drug is approved, additional information needs to be collected and it can sometimes be very hard to do that, particularly around a drug's effectiveness um, as opposed to its safety. Can I say one quick thing about this? I, I think it's a really important question, but in Alzheimer's disease, we've tended to be very risk averse. We tend to um, say, well, if there's any side effect, um, we need to kill this drug. Alzheimer's disease is an awful disease, and um, there's a recent survey that's suggesting older people fear Alzheimer's disease more than cancer. Think about the side effects that we allow in cancer drugs. So I think we um, need to balance this, and of course we don't want to do any harm to anyone, but I think unfortunately for many people facing Alzheimer's disease, um, more risk um, they're willing to take. And I think we need to do everything we can to keep people safe, but not be afraid of um, some risk in a biologically active drug, um, because for some people that risk is worth it. I, I would say I think it's important though to recognize the difference is that in cancer patients usually you're treating patients who have cancer whereas in Alzheimer's disease you'd be treating otherwise healthy patients who might have uh, a, the prospect of a disease 10 or 20 years in the future and so maybe the the set point needs to be uh, needs to be a little bit different. So I agree with you in asymptomatic trials and again um, that's part of the reason for the drug we cho chose for A4 was largely on its safety profile but we're risk averse in people who have mild to moderate dementia who have if they're at that stage of disease and have amyloid they have a nearly 100% likelihood of progressing to a nursing home state. At that stage, so I, think I think risk is important to consider. Pam, so yeah, I think Pam, this is a perfect example of where you would just ask the patient and including the patient preference into the whole process. And that is additionally also something that was picked up in the legislation that people are going to be forced to be doing, which I think is actually a good thing. This is really not for us to decide. This is for the community to decide. Agree. So we could do another whole hour of this, but we are have reached the end of our time. We have reached the lightning round. So this is what we're going to do. So much as I love moderating these panels, I do not want to be here in 20 years moderating another panel on Alzheimer's disease drug trials. Mm. Um, for each of our panelists, could you please tell us um, in less than a minute how we can get from here to something that is effective for patients who are on their way or to Alzheimer's or who have it already, either in terms of the drug trials or anything else. And I, I'm not starting with Aaron this time. I'm actually going to start with Risa, just because you are just, <laughs> sorry, yes, you're on, you're on the hook, um, because you are so involved in this. And I'm sure you don't want to be here in 20 years talking about the same thing either. Wave your magic wand. Tell us a few one even one thing that we can do different, better, whatever to make this happen. We can engage a much larger community to make these trials enroll quickly, involve the participants, and treat this disease like we treat every other chronic disease by trying to treat before symptoms have uh, occurred and there may be irreversible damage. Okay, Jill. A consideration, a systematic consideration of the impact of sex on the disease process. Uh, will enhance the development of novel therapeutics, we believe, um, 
and to look at that efficacy by sex. We think that the timing is now because the political climate is, is coinciding with the science of sex itself and the biology of sex. And so we really hope that these notions and these, these ideas will be incorporated into enhancing treatments um, by sex. Pam, your concluding thoughts. Yeah, so I would suggest that we really treat patients as equal partners in the whole process. So not just as participants, but as researchers and as people who are experts in their own diseases and ask them about some of the things we have typically made decisions for them for. And not just the patients in this case. I think in this case, the caregivers are also an important role. So, Aaron. Well, I mean, I think that it is uh, critically important to, um, you know, to, sub to you know, subject uh, new treatments to rigorous clinical trials so that we can identify which ones work um, and which ones don't, and to, uh, you know, keep in mind and, and to, to try to um, appropriately balance uh, the need for this kind of uh, this essential testing with the understanding that there is a substantial unmet medical need in this area, and I would hope that by um, that the, the sort of adjustments and, and um, uh, innovations that we make in the area of clinical trials um, will themselves also be tested just to make sure that we're, we're changing the right things um, and that we don't ultimately innovate clinical trials out of existence because then I, I think that'll end up um, not working out to the benefit of anybody. So you have been a wonderful panel. I thank you so much. Thank you so much for our terrific studio audi audience and our online audience. I appreciate it. Thank you again. This has been a production of the Forum at Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. You can find the complete video of this event and post your comments at www.forumhsph.org. Thank you for sharing the Forum.